Oh, did you hit record? Oh my god. Hello, welcome to the XX Mormon <laughs> Podcast. I am um, conducting and presiding. We have two priesthood authorities, one from the state high council. Well, not really, because he's a missionary at the same time. We have Elder Jackson. Hi. And then presiding, the other priesthood authority presiding is the brother of Jared. <laughs> howdy, howdy, howdy. <laughs> Coming in for this fine state conference. And, of course, we have Heavenly Mother, who has already lived her earthly probation and gotten married. Is she the first wife, the second wife, the third wife? We'll never know. And... Actually, she might not even know. She's just in no. the mix up there in heaven. <laughs> um, and it's weird. She's not presiding. But, you know, um, we're we're earthly men. So we have more power than our heavenly mother. Yes, exactly. Every time. Every time. <laughs> um, so our topic today is we're, we're going to break it down because it's quite a lot. I'm going to cite the source and i hope i say their name correctly if i don't i apologize i've never heard their name said out loud i've only read it so that's my excuse um tamun tamu akun created the 15 characteristics of white supremacy culture and there's a website about it in case you want to look it up but we here at the xx mormon podcast love to dog on the church and one of the biggest things you can dog on the church for is being racist <laughs> so wait 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 did you say that the church founded on the American frontier uh, in the 1800s is racist? I mean, it might take you a back. It might take you a minute. Pray and ponder on it. I'm I'm shook. (laughs) Don't let me tell you. Pray and ponder on it. Don't take my word for it. Are you saying the church... (laughs) That is largely based on the mound builders myth, the myth that says that there had to have been a white race of Indians. You're you're telling me yes, brother. that the the group, the church that believed that indigenous people in the Americas could not have built all these impressive structures. You're telling me that that church is racist. Yes. I am. Oh my I am God. into you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to take a minute. You I, can take all the minutes you need. Oh it's, boy, it's quite, it's quite new revelation, truly. Quite, the, the, quite new <laughs> revelation. I, well, thank you, Heavenly Mother, for bringing this to my attention. This is. I know. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, which is fair. So me and the brother of Jared, maybe one day at some point, we'll do an episode on specific horror stories of racism, but also that's so big and vast and mm-hmm. incredibly painful because the majority of it happens to us when we're young and cognitively it is terrible. So we broke it down, taking from Tamu Akun, the 15 characteristics and then I thought we could find examples of the church doing those 15 things. Because mm. I, I believe, and we'll see, testament testimony time, if I'm correct, as we pray and ponder on this, I believe that the church meets all 15. Because I believe that the church is, in fact, one of the pillars of white supremacy and racism, okay. um, which is another aspect. But yeah, it's 15 characteristics. So there are themes and patterns and behaviors and thought processes that contribute to white supremacy culture 
because as Tamuakun has said and others have said, how can we fight racism if we don't know what it looks like? Right. So it goes much far, it goes way, way more beyond the ideas of racism that we have, which is in like film and media, where it's like a Ku Klux Klan member saying slurs. Like that, of course, obviously happens, but really it's all around us. Do, 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 do. And so we thought we'd get into, and if we can't cover all 15, then we'll, we'll figure it out. So no pressure. No Sounds pressure. good. Sounds good. And I, just as a disclaimer, I am a white man. So <laughs> I am the only white man on this podcast. And so I just think that my view is most important here. Um, obviously, uh, no, I'm kidding. But, ser but seriously, any white man listening to this podcast can now feel comfortable because because uh, I I am here, I am part of the discussion. I you know I'm gonna make sure nobody here listening is offended today. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think we can jump into it. Fair enough, fair enough. And then in case people haven't listened to before, I am indigenous. I'm a Native American woman. I'm also mixed with white. Aha! So I I can I can pass. I can blend in because um, I'm racially. But I am. I identify as an Native American woman, so that's indisputable. And yeah, so those are my credentials. And then what are your? Say your credentials. You don't have to say your credentials, brother Ooh, Jared. I mean, what do I even? <laughs> what are your credentials to talk to speak on the topic? I think I feel almost every criteria. <laughs> I'd say what? Uh, let's see. It's uh, let's see, indigenous. Yeah. Black. Yeah. And Hispanic. There you go. Or Latino X, whatever. Whatever you're more comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, you decide. So we, yeah, we've we've got our bases covered. We've basically yeah. got seven people on this podcast right now. <laughs> we slot into every identity. I feel a little bit left out because I'm just I'm just white, you know. If I don't, I could say like, oh, Scottish and German. Does that if that makes people feel better? There's a little yeah. more diversity there. Perfect. Yeah. And yeah. you. So in no particular order, the 15 characteristics, we're going to start, I wrote them all down because there's so many, but this is really going to, I think it's going to be very on point. So the first one I have down is perfectionism. The concept of perfectionism is a tool of white supremacy. So uh, gentlemen, listeners, think on, does the church have an issue with perfectionism? Be, uh, yes, yeah, it does. <laughs> but also, um, can you explain how this is like how perfectionism is a tool of white supremacy? Like, what? How would somebody identify it? Because, okay, per perfectionism is a thing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a tool of white supremacy. So, if I was looking for perfectionism as being used as a tool of white supremacy, what would that look like? I love that you asked that. Do you want to go, Brother Jerry? Do you want me to go on this you can one? Go. Oh, thanks. Okay. Um, not that I always ask a man for permission, but the Brother <laughs> Jerry happens to be be uh, be entangled with me more. So, anyways, um, so perfectionism as it looks with white supremacy is basically the sense of it's never good enough. Um, so it isn't always about the the look of things need to look perfect, look pristine, whatever that means, right? And a certain aesthetic. So on an episode called Opulence, the me and Mary Magdalene did, 
we really roasted hard the aesthetic of temples because it is ethnically and racially a very specific type of beauty. Um, and that's put on a pedestal. So that can also be a part of perfectionism, but I really see it as a, it's never good enough. So I have a little story example I've wanted to talk about on the podcast. And if I have, I have amnesia about it. So no one come for me. But God, she said this story before. I'm sorry. <laughs> I truly am. So I used to work for this agency a couple years ago that what it did in the state of Oklahoma, it was the best at it. The top rated, top reviewed, even former, even employees gave it high scores. It was the top at what it did. And we would go in for meetings on a monthly basis. It might have been two months. I'm not sure. And every time we would meet, we would talk about what could we do better. Mm. And it was very frustrating. And I now know that it was triggering to me of my experience in the Mormon church, but I didn't know it at the time. But I would leave these meetings really anxious. I would disassociate and I was getting really stressed out and I wasn't sure why. And finally, it was actually a woman of color word who there weren't very many in the company. Anyways, that was another thing. The diversity was not hot. She literally raised her hand and said, we're the best in Oklahoma. So what are these meetings about? Hmm. Like, shouldn't it be keep up the good work? And so they basically said, well, we don't know what we're missing. We don't know what we don't know. We could have blind spots. And I was like, this is madness. Like you're perceiving that there's room for improvement when it's just fine the way that it is. Hmm. And there was no like reward, no pat on your back. And this was not an abusive, toxic company at all. This piece of perfectionism just happens to be a tool of white supremacy. So you don't applaud people for efforts that they've made, beauty that they have, progress that they've made. You instead focus on what isn't, even if you have to make it up. Hmm. That's interesting because on for any like people who know or have been on a mission, you do this thing called companionship inventory, right? And essentially, in, in my opinion, missionaries are the closest to what people consider to be perfect, aside from like the prophet and apostles. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that say you have you and your companion your fellow missionary are working insanely hard, doing everything you got to do, working, waking up early. I mean, literally you're busting your, you know, ass or whatever. And then you have these companionship inventories. And I remember doing some of them where you basically have to talk about, Hey, what are you doing that you can improve on? What can I improve on? Et cetera, et cetera. And I remember there were times when we were literally doing everything and we would literally have to force something out of us to like, to like, Hey man, you are, uh, you're not really struggling, but you have to find something that they're struggling with. Or, like, really, you really have to, like, dig deep, even though there was nothing for us to improve on. But there was always this culture of, like, there's always something you can do better. And I guess, like, that was kind of really unnecessary to have that or to really, like, force, like, someone to get better at something when you guys are already doing everything perfectly. I don't know. I just thought it was really – it was an absurd thing. And that's one example I could think of is just you're always being forced to, like, expect more of someone when you guys are already doing everything like i don't know what more missionaries could do i don't know like they're already giving everything and now you know you're being asked do more do more and so i always thought that was kind of messed up that i have to like make my companion feel like he's not like completely perfect no you're still inadequate in this you always have to improve 
literally. And it, it's exhausting. So the way that it is a tool of white supremacy is that the poor victims, right? Church members, the victims, truly missionaries, truly victims. Um, I don't feel like as an employee at that company was a victim, but in the church context, yes, I think we all were. Perfectionism keeps you exhausted, too exhausted to focus on things that actually are problems that actually need to be worked on because you're distracted with perfecting yourself, individual perfectionism, instead of putting forth this effort into something productive, it's going towards a, a goal that can't be reached. I've talked about it like a treadmill before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're constantly being nitpicked at. And I, I feel like, um, that, that nitpicking, this is something that's been bugging me. I've been listening to a lot of like movie podcasts and and stuff like that. Cause I, I really like film and, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time, people will say, well, I loved this movie. This was awesome. This was awesome. This was awesome. But if I had to pick something that was kind of not quite there, it would be da-da-da-da-da, right? And they, like, they search and they search and they search for something that it's like, well, it was perfect. I loved it. But nothing can be perfect. It's like the people who say, oh, no, I don't give five-star reviews. I don't give 10 out of 10 because there's like a little there there's like they they don't believe that anything can be perfect and so they have to find the thing that's not perfect and say that's why i gave it four stars instead of just being like no yeah i loved it like it was awesome god are these people white (laughs) Uh, there's I mean, I'm they're sure. largely white people. I feel like, it, <laughs> but I I feel like there's a little bit of bias there because it's podcasts. Yeah. Right. Like they're, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it, it is it is a a problem instead of just appreciating that. Hey, like you did a really great job, you know, and we don't need to worry about such and such an issue or whatever. Right. Like just appreciating it for what it is i give 10 out of 10 to so many movies on imdb i'm like yeah i loved it it was awesome it was so fun yeah and it evens it out i do have movies that i completely love (laughs) and same Uh, do you have anything you wanted to add brother oh no i was just gonna say fun fact that we had a in our in our high school we had a a friend teacher he was his french frenchman uh you know french and he was teaching French. Well, you know. And uh, he would never give anyone a hundred mm-hmm. or like a, or at all unless you were fluent in French. That's literally the first thing he says. That you will never get a hundred in this class unless you are French or Such speak fluently. And I was like, that's kind of a really messed up expectation for like high yeah. schoolers. Yeah. You're never going to get a hundred unless you're fluent like me. Like, okay, that's right. weirdo behavior. And also, in case listeners are getting offended, I will quote James Baldwin, the civil rights activist and American novelist, white supremacy has no color. So there are people of all races, ethnicities who uphold these characteristics. Because if someone's listening to this and like, God, that sounds just like my so and so who I know who happens to be of color. Yes, these characteristics, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> anybody anybody could be a white supremacist and i also i also think anybody can be a perfectionist without being at the same time a white supremacist right like i don't think the 
the things have to go together, but I think in the church we see it go together because the idea of perfection is a white bearded man in the sky. And so I, I think because that's what everybody is always taught to like go towards, that's where I think the perfectionism in the church turns into and involves and is a product of white supremacy. I, co I totally agree. Yeah, all these, I, um, I'll state that all these characteristics are also, you can find them outside of white supremacy, but in this instant, the church has used them for its evil racist reasons. So yeah. yeah. That's why, my little disclaimer, God, that French teacher sounds like a dick. Anyways, <laughs> um, I, I can go to the next one unless we want to stay on perfectionism. Uh, let's, let's keep going. All right, so the next one we have is sense of urgency. Um, and so I think my only little thoughts about this is I think every cult is kind of built on that. Like mm -hmm. the end of the world's coming. We have to do this. We have to do this. We have deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. Um, and so I think sense of urgency. We don't have time for that. We don't have time to have a diversity training. We don't have time to have a racial di racial sensitivity training. We don't have time to go over all our HR policies. Go, go, go. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Like the we have an audit coming up we have this coming up is a tool of white supremacy because it keeps you in it again with the perfectionism kind of the state of panic mm -hmm. so you can't actually focus on things that you do indeed have time for who is who is making up these deadlines the big one that i see with the church all the goddamn time drives me insane is their temple announcements where mm -hmm. they're flushing out all these temples and wanting them built when no one is going to them, tithing money's down, attendance is down, but there's still this urgency, like pumping out, pumping out, pumping out. Um, so that's one example of sense of urgency. What are y'all's? Uh, I guess like when um when I when I was in the church, I always felt like there was always something to do. Like you would finish one big activity. Wow, look how long it took us to plan this out or whatever. And immediately that next Sunday, all right, we're playing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I remember as soon as I left, um, I kind of felt like, wow, I don't have anything crazy going on at the moment. Like, I'm not being forced to meet ridiculous headlines. I'm not getting paid for. Um, and I, just, I think, like, it, like in, internally, like, something clicked with me after because it was like, I don't know. It's like my, my body was always, like, in a sense of stress and panic when I was a member of the church. And as soon as I left, my body had no idea how to react to it because I was always so busy, you know, from like before the mission, going on a mission, then after trying to live up to that ridiculous expectation, you're always trying to maintain that level of urgency that they make. They give you a talk. The first day of my mission, they give you this talk about urgency and it's engraved in your brain. This is what you have to have 24 uh, seven. You sleep with urgency. I don't know. And so you come back and you're like, I have to maintain this mentality. And as soon as you leave, you're like, I don't know what to do anymore because I no longer have this monkey on my back telling me, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to live like this. You got to eat, dress, however they want you to. And it's like the hardest. I think that was probably one of the hardest things to like adjust to was no longer living like, you know, like that level of intensity. Yeah. Damn, I didn't think about that talk. That shakes me. I think I still have it in my backpack at home. Like that's so unhealthy. Yeah. I had no idea about that talk. Yeah. 
Man, I remember when I was Mormon, I always felt like people weren't being urgent enough. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. you know, if you people really believed this, if you really believed it, you would be out there knocking doors right now because the second coming could happen at any time. And you better be trying to bring souls to Christ. You know, and I just like, I, yeah. And I, I think that's an aspect of it being a cult. So I'll ask Heavenly Mother with this one again, how, how is this one involved with white supremacy? Um, so a perfect example would be the sense of urgency about how we need to get things done is because it's this ultimate distraction and it sends people into a mental panic. Hmm. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation or in a game or done an escape room or something where somebody comes up to you and is like, we got to go. There's a timer. Like you pick up on this energy of this, like it has to be done immediately. So the biggest thing I think with this sense of urgency is, as it contributes to white supremacy is that you keep people in a panic and productive with things that aren't really that important so that you don't have time to do the things that require patience and slowness. So one of the things that requires actual patience and actual slowness is deconstructing. Mm. That does take time. The faster you do that, if you do, if you deconstruct with a sense of urgency, you're going to miss huge pieces. That just is a fact, is a matter of a fact. Um, <clears throat> so if you keep people with this sense of urgency, it's a distraction from very important things that would in fact hurt the church. Hmm. So part of a tool of white supremacy is to distract everybody from the, that deep well. Because if you really start to go down and you start to look at things like how has racism affect generations? How has it affected me on a biological level? How has it affected me on a social level? How has it affected my town, my city, my whatever? What, what can I do better? It does take time mm -hmm. and patience. But if you're hurriedly doing things, um, then you keep missing it. So an example is a sense of urgency. Um, I had a training for a different job on ICWA. And for the sake of time, they thought let's do a training on ICWA, which is Indian Child Welfare Act, and a training on LGBTQ plus teens. We're going to do it in one because we just don't have time. So it ended up happening. And one of my really good friends who happens to be, he's uh, Apache and Cherokee mm. <laughs> and gay. <laughs> he was like, uh, all of me is offended. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, this was a disservice to both of the things that I am. And I yeah. hate this. And I was crazy offended. But my the agency at the time is a different one again that I work for now. This is in the past, a couple of years ago, and a different one from the other story. They just didn't have the time to squeeze that in. Right, And the church does that with so many meetings, so many Relief Society meetings, so many state conference meetings. So if someone does have a really good idea and proposes, let's do a talk on compassion. Let's do a talk on racial sensitivity or trainings or whatever. They instead say, well, our itinerary is so full. The, the schedule is already so full. And they end up doing the same five five fucking talks about the same goddamn topics, missionary work, pay your tithing. It always goes back to these 
really trivial things instead of actually helping the cause. So that was such a long answer to your question, but a sense of urgency is basically keep the victims in a panic, right? Keep focus on perfectionism, and then they won't notice the man behind the curtain. We're all in the Wizard of Oz, y'all. Right, the man behind the curtain, which I, is that's Bramsey. I I, th I think too, um, one of one of the ways that white supremacy uses urgency is in those uh like those those memes you see about the fear of you know white dna being diluted and whatever right like all these white people having kids with black people and then now they're like they look black right their skin is darker right um and uh and creating that urgency and that fear in white people to like rile them up to being a white supremacist is even though it's like my my skin color like my skin is white but that doesn't like that's not who i am right it, it's an it's a characteristic it's an outward characteristic of my dna right like and but then they use this fear of like oh no we're gonna lose white skin one we're not losing white skin like it's not <laughs> it's not, not disappearing right <laughs> like, yeah. it's not going anywhere <laughs> But also, um, like, they use that to get people worried. Like, they find something that isn't really that important, but they make it seem like a, like a, big, a big deal. Exactly. Because if it was really about loss of culture, cultures have preserved regardless of the way the phenotype, right, the physical way people look. It's very, very silly to me, like, um, it just, it ugh, tickles me pink because like, if you're, if they really were worried about their culture, well, like, can they even define that? What are you really worried about being lost? Cause if it's just a physical feature, I, I, I assure you it will not go out of business. <laughs> well, and also cultures change, right? Like yeah. you try and look at like my, <laughs> my interpretation of my ancestors culture it's like three recipes, right? They're, you know, they're like, oh, great, great grandson, you've you've lost our culture. It's like, oh no, look, I have these th I th three recipes that I, I love making shortbread cookies and these cream noodles and pierogies and stuff like, oh, I love, I love this. And they, you know, but for them, they're like, oh, but you're not farming and you're not doing this and you're not doing that. Culture, cultures change over time. And so, I think uh, an overemphasis on, um, you know, on like some preservation of what you imagine the past to be, um, I, I think it can be harmful, you know, when, mm -hmm. you, when you tie your cultural identity too tightly to these superfluous things, right? I like. Agree like your skin color literally phenotype genes yeah like it's not even yeah. <laughs> they're changeable <laughs> could you imagine could you imagine if i had a child with brown eyes i'd be like oh my goodness they've ruined everything everything's lost it's like what <laughs> what what like nobody they're sensitive to the sun i yeah. mean it's actually a genetic benefit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like it's like who you know 
it's like what's the big deal but yeah they create that um that urgency around you know uh the the loss of things that aren't as important as i don't know um caring about people here and now today i think you know maybe that's more important i don't know that that's just that's just one white man's opinion <laughs> fair enough fair enough so they'll they'll make issues where there's not issues mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I'm. That's what I'm picking up from what you're dropping. I'm um, the next one. God, this is gonna rile up some people. It's defensiveness. <laughs> mm. That's so. Y'all go first, cause I have too many. <laughs> I have a very funny story about this. Well, actually, I don't know if I'd say funny, um, but I was having a discussion with another white man who I know and the subject of residential schools came up. And for people who don't know, in Canada, we had uh, the Indian residential schools where kids were taken from their First Nations homes and they were put into a school. Originally, they tried doing a a day school. And I've been listening to a podcast about this a, a little bit it's called we need to talk about bryce and it, it talks that specifically talks about um uh the uh health issues in residential schools and how the government of canada completely failed to do anything about issues that they knew existed in these places um but it was genocide right you take kids from their homes a ton of them died, a ton of them, you know, there were issues um, with molestation um, and it was run by Catholic priests and nuns um, and like horrible, 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 horrible thing. The last one closed in 1996 and I was having a conversation about this with this other white man that I know and he he was saying, oh, well, I have uh, an indigenous friend who who went to a residential school and she said she preferred it to being at home with her abusive alcoholic father. And sh- she said the worst thing that happened to her at this school was that she was molested by another student there, uh, which was another one of the problems at these schools. And... She said she preferred it, is what what he told me. And I was thinking, well, do you think like part of the reason that her father was abusive and an alcoholic was because he went to a residential school and had all these other problems that like he had to face, you know? And then now that created a trauma that, you know, carries on to into abuse of other people, right? Um, well, and then we kind of go on and I'm, I'm kind of like pushing back. I'm like, dude, no, like you cannot, you cannot tell me that these were good things. Like, why are you defending a horrible system? Right. And this is the defensiveness, right? It's he's defending a horrible system because he thinks that people expect him to feel personally guilty for the things that happened at residential schools. And I told him, I said, it's, you don't need to feel guilty. You did not do those things. You were born after those things were stopped as like as a 
system, right? But you exist in a world that has inherited those problems, and now you need to deal with the problems that we've inherited. Like, that's that's the deal. We didn't sign up for that. We didn't sign up to, like, oh, boy, I sure can't wait to go go down to Earth and, you know, like... <laughs> Uh, have to deal with all these problems that I inherited from, you know, these white people a hundred years ago who made these decisions. And now we have to face the consequences and try to rectify the situation. Um, but he was getting defensive and, um, and he said, he, he had to go and he said, he says, well, I got to go, but I just want to leave it with this. He says, when you're correcting something, it helps if you say a few nice things about it and then share the thing that you're trying to correct. I'm like, oh, oh my God. Like, <laughs> are, are you telling me, are you telling me that I have to say a few nice things about residential schools before I try and be like, oh, also genocide, right? Like, excuse excuse me i'm not correcting a toddler you know like when you're when you're correcting somebody's homework as a child you might be like oh hey you know like you did really well on multiplication but i think we could work on the division aspect a little bit i i think there's a few misunderstandings you might have about that it's not the same thing that is not the same thing as genocide i i have no responsibility to say nice things about the church before I say like, hey, also like the white supremacy, that's not good, right? Like they're like, yeah, but they donated, you know, a goat to Africa. It's like, oh, good for, good for them. I, what? Right? Like I think, and that's, that's that defensiveness is the, the need to, um, to kind of remove yourself from the situation, like make it clear, like, hey, you know, I didn't do a genocide. It's like, hey, listen, I know you didn't do a genocide. What we're talking about is the system you live in that has in the past perpetrated those things and now today has to deal with those things and stop, um, stop itself from being defensive about it because the church is even, you know, defensive when they say we don't, we don't apologize. It's like, okay, but like you probably should. Just a just a recommendation. That's just that's just an idea, crazy idea. Maybe apologies are good things. God, preach to everything that you said. Amen to everything that you said. Mic drop to that man. But you're exactly right. And when you had said that, you know, we didn't cause it, but we inherited it. Inher oh my God, why can't I speak? Inherit it. We inherited it. God, I can't. That word, you know the word I'm trying to say. I know the, the word you're trying. I think inherit. Yeah. The past tense of inherit. Um, I I always want to say when people say that, like, because we do. As an indigenous person, I inherit all of that. Mm -hmm. It's called epigenetic coding. Y'all look it up. I inherit all of that. I know that the average white person I've met in Oklahoma didn't put my grandfather in a boarding school, mm -hmm. but I live with the consequences of how his DNA was changed by the trauma. Mm -hmm. He was five years old, taken away from his parents. Mm -hmm. It's a huge thing. If, going to, if I keep talking about it, I'll cry, but I'll shift. I'm going to pivot. 
So the defensiveness, you're exactly right. It's this weird personalization because it's like, why are you taking the criticism that we're giving towards an institution mm-hmm. so personally? Mm-hmm. Like, it isn't even about you, I Peter. Think... What his name was. Like, it's not even about you, but I, I think like... part of the personalization of it comes from how we personalize the successes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just went out... Um, uh, about a month ago, we had a family reunion out in Saskatchewan, southern Saskatchewan. We had a family reunion at the family farm, and a distant cousin of mine who still farms there uh, took me on a tour, and he showed me the site where my great-grandmother taught school. Um, the school is no longer there, but there's like a plaque that says, you know, oh, there, there was a little one-room schoolhouse there, and he took me to the shack that my great great grandfather built when he moved to Canada from Ukraine and and it was interesting to see um to see to see all of that stuff and i think there is a tendency to personalize that history to say like look how cool that is Look how awesome that is. You know, my grandma did this and my grandpa did that and blah, 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 blah. But then there's also the tendency to um, get defensive when somebody tries to personalize the issues that come from that. Because obviously that land was not always farmed by white people, right? And that's something that I, I have to deal with. And I don't know how my grandparents felt about that. I don't know how even aware they were that indigenous people used to live there and use that land for whatever they use that land for, right? Um, and so I think because we tend to personalize the successes, when somebody brings up the failures and the catastrophes in our ancestors past then we immediately think oh i i'm they're expecting me to personalize that right it's the same way with the u.s government you know people will be like the constitution you know like our forefathers blah 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 right but then if you bring up something negative that's when you get defensive. So I think it has to do with how we personalize the good things and get defensive about the bad things. Um, I, imag- I imagine that that's part of where that uh, defensiveness comes from. Whereas I, I didn't do either of those things. I've never farmed in my life. And I also have never done a genocide. So um, no need to, to personalize it. But... I do think it's important that we grapple with the the issues in the systems that we have inherited. True word. And I think also I kind of had an epiphany when you were talking about the personalization is that's one of the dangers. Like I have this joke and it's not a joke. I just say it as a joke, but it's serious. How if I meet someone who is white of European descent and they don't know what they are, there's like, oh, I'm just white. I'm like, okay, wait, what? Then I'm, I'm worried that they hyper-identify 
with white as a social construct, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, look this up, everyone. 1600s, things went bad. Yeah. Um, it's this social construct, construct that has its own culture of homogenousness. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to be a white person that has their own cultures that have come from it, like certain niche cultures, like that have dialects and whatever that happen to be white, like Cajun people, for example, mm-hmm. uh, they're really disliked by the homogenous group. And so I think that separating from the homogenousness, homogenousness, I don't know if that's a word, it's probably part of the key. So you don't feel so defensive. Did we, what do you have to say to this, Brother Jared? Anything to add? No. Anything you guys pretty much got? Uh, <laughs> I know where you, you led with the story about a residential school. So we just had a boom. But also, I've noticed in myself that I can be very defensive mm-hmm. if someone critiques me or points out something that I did wrong. And I really don't listen to anybody about those things unless I like love them or care about them. So the loved one, I have this instinct to be defensive that I've had to fight through. And my thought process is, Oh no, they're not going to love me anymore. They've realized that I've, I'm not, I'm a bad person. (laughs) It's like, it totally spirals, right? Like it totally escalates from like, I'm a bad person. They caught it. They found out. They found out I'm, I'm really I'm really a bad person. And then I get defensive and it's almost like it's easier to try to gaslight this person and to mm-hmm. know I did it. No, no, I'm still as perfect as you thought I was yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's almost easier to do that instead of being like, you're right. I told you to pick up your shoes and I have three pairs of shoes on the rug. You're correct in that assertion. So it's like, I'm wondering if that's just something that collectively is a tool of white supremacy everybody thinks that when they get defensive like oh no they're not gonna love me anymore mm. they could lose a friendship like <laughs> they brought up residential schools and i'm white and they're never gonna speak to me again like that's not what i'm saying brenda like that's not that's not what's happening but i i wonder if that's i have to think on that but the church is so aggressively defensive it's mm-hmm. so it's offensive with how defensive it is well, and it teaches it teaches people within the church to be defensive about about all of that, right? Like that's that's just part of that's part of the deal. Is um, you know, uh, you see it if you if you bring something up that doesn't fit into somebody's paradigm, right? Is that they they get defensive? You bring up you bring up blacks in the priesthood. It's like, oh well, that's that's in the past. That's in the past, right? Like we don't we don't do that anymore. Black people are fully fully accepted, fully accepted. They always feel accepted. They they love us. We love our black brothers and sisters. You know, like that's what they always they always say stuff like that. <laughs> you know? Know? And then you're like, I'm crying inside. It's like, okay, yes, yes, no no problems in this system. Oh, God. Yeah, the defensiveness is wild. Even when they got caught protecting pedophiles, they're like, well, we're not sorry. Anyways, this is why you were wrong. Um, Should I go to the next one? I think so. We just beat defensiveness. Mm -hmm. This next one is (laughs) quantity over quality. Every go for this. <laughs> Take it away, brother Jared. Take so, it away. In my opinion, the way I've seen quantity over quality used as a characteristic is, you know, usually having a lot of something, a lot of numbers, you know, of something to make it look more scary or more, you know, uh, to have a bigger presence. 
Um, and the way I've seen this in the church is, you know, for anyone who you don't have to be a missionary for this, but if you go to your, or if you still are a member, you can go to your um, ward secretary and ask them for an actual number of how many members they're supposed to be active in the church or active in that ward. And generally you'll see thousands, I mean, thousands of people. And you'll go like, well, there's only like 100 people go every Sunday. So what's going on? And as a missionary, we, you know, are the main thing you're taught is to baptize, baptize, baptize. It's all that matters at the end of the day. And when I was on my mission, I noticed that our ward, usually it was about averaging 100 people. Hmm. And I look at the memory, the member list, whether it's called the directory, and instead we actually had 2,000 members. And I'm like, so you're telling me like 1,900 of these people just were like, nah. And so I did some investigating with my companion and we're like, okay, well, why do we have so many members but so little attendance? And I was asking people around, like, hey, hey, do you know anything about what happened? Why, you know, if this, you know, this member or so and so. And a lot, we had these kids come up to us, and they're like, oh yeah, we were all baptized. We all we were challenged by the missionaries a few years ago to a soccer game, and if we lost, then we all had to get baptized. It was fifteen of them, and I was like, yeah, they don't even go to church anymore. They just lost the bet, and they were like, okay, whatever, like we'll get baptized. And so I think the church loves these mass numbers. They love throwing out, like Bednar, he loves, he calls himself a statistic man. He loves throwing out, what the, what, look at all these great numbers that the church has. But in reality, like, yes, you may have this many baptisms or attendance once in a while, but that's not an actual average. That's just like a one-time thing. And they use it to show, oh, look at this growth we're having. But in reality, like, if you look, because I think there was a, um, I may talk about it on the last, second to last episode I was on, but they were claiming that they had this high level of membership. And then at the same time, on another podcast, they were saying, well, actually, they were claiming to have, like, what, like 15 million or some absurd number. And in reality, the amount of people that were actually going was, like, maybe, like, in the two to three million, something like that. Like, he was a lot less than what he thought because he was taking into account inactive members, less active members, uh, don't quote me on the, on the statistics, but it was it was significantly different. So I think the church loves to throw like, oh, we need mass quantity, but in or quality quantity, and in reality, the quality of like these numbers are actually quite abysmal. Like they're not here to stick. We just need a big number to scare people. Oh, I completely agree. It re- it reminds me of the temple thing that goes back to the perfectionism thing. They build all these temples, so many, that they're not even full, and they blow all this money on it, that, for what? For why? Like, they, every conference, they announce more and more temples, and then it was you, Elder Jackson, that pointed out that they stopped saying the actual number of the members anymore. Hmm. They stopped saying that, right? Is that, is that true, or is that wrong? Uh, I, don't I, know if, I don't know if they did. Okay, I don't know if but, they had stopped. Someone, I'll also double check because I've listened to one of the ex-Mormon podcasts that I yeah. like to listen to. I like to listen to RFM sometimes, and sometimes I'll listen to Mormon stories, and they'll usually speak on after a conference happens. I think they'll do I, an episode about it. I think you might be right, though. I think I think I heard something similar. And, and yeah, they love the big numbers, right? It's like what Brother Jared was saying, how, you know, they love... To say, because those 1,900 people who don't show up to church, they count. They count. They're on the list. They're people that we got. 
and and so they love the big the big numbers to say we're doing this much and that's our 200th temple that we've announced and this is this and uh it's like uh oaks had a talk a while ago that my sister told me about where he was just like bragging about you know we did this many hours of service and we did this and that and so um yeah yeah it's a it's a big it's a big deal the church is kind of a big deal um so how uh how does this tie into white supremacy how is this used by the church as a tool of white supremacy i love that so how this is manipulated and used is quantity over quality is um the mass kind of like the just the mass expansion and more of something even if it's not great but at least we have more mm -hmm. uh, so if i think about tools of white supremacy there's no limit to the greed mm -hmm. even if even if people aren't as i mean inflation's like that mm -hmm. we have more money now but are we more happy no because everything the price of everything has gone up yeah. so the quality of life i don't think is really killing it but people make more and so I think it's a tool of white supremacy in that is that it's a really great, <laughs> you can just gaslight people. We have so yeah. much of these. We're yeah. fine. We're great. We're happy. Even though the quality, just like the brother Jared was saying, all those members and the majority of them don't go to church. Mm -hmm. And a great deal of them hate the church. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to go about getting their records off. Yeah. One of the many, many reasons I got my records removed was because the love bombing was really getting to me because it would work. I'd go for a Sunday just to make you happy. And then I don't really believe and it kills me inside. And then another reason was I was like, I don't want them to think that I'm still a member. Like, I don't want to be on their their stats. I don't want that. Um, but they keep you on there for the to seem more intimidating the the quantity versus quality is yeah it's just a gaslighting tool that's how it's a tool of white supremacy yeah is look how big this company is look how much money this company made but what is it doing and as we know the church hoards its wealth exponentially like the mm -hmm. church hoards so much money it's it's despicable they're not spending it on things that actually matter mm -hmm. i think it's so. also a very american thing Mm -hmm. um like the need to have more the need to have bigger and better um is a very very american ideal uh when i was in the netherlands just to you know drop that in i i traveled once um the this lady was talking about how yeah like a lot of people grow up and they work and live in the same town that they grew up in whereas i feel like if you watch american media there's always this, I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to get out of this sleepy old town and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go and join the big city. Right. And sometimes, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's uh, the big city. I just want the wide open spaces of the countryside. It's this never satisfied, right? Like I don't have, I don't have enough space or I don't have enough money or my closet's not big enough or, you know, I need a nicer car. And, um, I recently got rid of my car. I've been car-free for over a month now. Um, and it is like, it's like a shedding of society's expectation 
on me, right? Like it's this, oh, like I don't actually need this thing to be happy, this money pit that I, you know, you buy gas and insurance and soon you're poor. Um, but yeah, it is like, uh, I just, in my head now I'm going on to my whole, uh, urbanism thing and, and everything else. But yeah, it's like, uh, it's an obsession about having, having bigger and quote unquote better and trying to have more. And, uh, I hate to break it to you folks. That's not the way to happiness, but of course that's not what the church believes, but good for them. You know, they're out there getting more money. The pile just keeps getting bigger. Isn't that weird? Like, you're not using it for anything. They're like, we're saving it for a rainy day. And then literally COVID comes and it's like, hey, hey, it's a rainy day for, like, everybody. Everybody is having a rainy day right now. And they're like, uh, well, actually, because it's a rainy day, it's also a rainy day on the stock market, which means we've actually lost money now. You know, it's like, what? Like, you use this money. I did a survey. There's a, like a survey going around, I guess, about um, uh, trying to understand why people leave the church better. Mm-hmm. And it's not the church that's doing it. It's a mission president doing it. And he has like this whole disclaimer at the front of it. He's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing with this with the church. I'm just trying to understand people better, blah, blah, blah. And my sister sent it to our family chat. And, uh, and she had filled it out. And she was like, guys fill out the survey what you know whatever and i fill out the survey and there's a lot of opportunity for you to like share your thoughts and one of the questions was like hey what would the church have to do for you to come back and i just like i'm like it would have to admit that the book of mormon never happened it would have to admit to white supremacy it would have to uh, admit that like brigham young joseph smith like these were not good dudes it would have to like give this up, give that up, start using the money for this, stop building temples. Like, and I was just like, and then I was like, and then maybe I might come back for some volunteer activities. Like, I'm like, like, it's not, it's not real. It's not real. Like basically it would have to stop being a church and start spending its money to help people. You know, a charity organization, which it doesn't even do. It doesn't, that was such a mind blowing experience too, is how much the church, I mentioned it before, like they don't have domestic violence shelters. They don't have hospitals. They don't have fostering agencies. They don't have agencies to help people get their kids back. Yeah. They don't have, they don't give reparations no. to all the native people that they exploited horrifically. No. They don't do any of those things that actually would help. A, they don't have a community food bank. They have a Bishop storehouse. They keep shutting those down to save money. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't actually do anything. And so the quantity is huge, but the quality is zero. They have so much money. And yeah. they don't spend it on anything. Well, you um, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. You you look at like you go downtown Salt Lake. There are tons of people who have no house, like they have no shelter, and uh, like tons of people, tons, and they they just put up signs saying "Don't give money," and they build a big fancy mall to move poor people further away instead of like you know actually doing something like i always tell people 
I spend I spend more than half my money on rent, right? Because I gotta live. I have to have a roof over my head, mm-hmm. and the um, like, it's expensive. And I tell people, I'm like, I want a shoebox. Like, I want just like a shoebox to live in. That's all. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking to have like a big mansion to live in, right? Um, and neither are these people who are out on the streets, right? And who and, and a lot of people they say, oh well, what about family and friends and blah blah blah. It's like not everybody has the privilege of having a supportive social network. Like I'm really fortunate. If I lost everything, I could stay with a sibling. I could stay with one of my parents. Uh, you know, like I could, I I would have somewhere to go, right? Um, not everybody is so fortunate. Um, and so that, I mean, that's the, is it, that's the whole reason why churches aren't taxed in the U S is because they're supposed to be doing these social goods in the community, not hoarding wealth. Exactly. So, I mean, we've discussed this. It's a huge thing on Reddit, you know, the so-called church, because it's not really a church. No, it's not. It isn't church. It's a cult. So I'm going to jump into, if it's okay with you, the next section which I don't know how much, how long we'll be able to talk on this one because it's kind of part of the whole deal. And it is worship of the written word. Oh. And that's the whole, that's the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's the whole that's, cult that's, the Book of Mormon. That's, that's literally the, the whole thing. Share funny, the thing that you said, the brother Jerry, before we recorded about the, what you found on the Facebook thing. I thought it was funny. You don't have to share if you don't want to. I don't remember which one. Oh no, the people are giving away Book of Mormons. Oh, and the comments yeah. were hilarious and oh, fire. Goodness. Okay, yes. please share the story. So <laughs> uh, yeah, so we were we were discussing before we started the episode about how, you know, and this is also something we talked about of, you know, me and um oh, in, a, in a past episode. Uh so there were these missionaries who were uh so we use this thing on marketplace where you go to sell stuff, right? Everyone almost everyone uses it. And so we're trying to buy some stuff for the apartment, right? And so as I'm looking down, looking through the listings, I see that the missionaries are because I guess I, I again it, it always stuns me that they can use Facebook. Even to this day, it's been years. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, they're on Facebook. That's weird. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot it's it's changing the policies. Mm. And so interesting. And so they're soliciting these Book of Mormons for free, obviously. Like, I mean, they're not it's like free and then they're they're showing pictures of the Book of Mormon, pictures of themselves, like posing. Super weird. And then they're writing this massive paragraph of like their testimony, what it's about. And I don't know what they were expecting, because like, you know, Oklahoma's not the nicest community sometimes. And there's all these people in the comments saying, like, liar, you guys are a cult, you guys need help, call this number if you need to get out. And I'm just like, God, this is hilarious. Like, all these comments, like, (laughs) go people, you guys are doing the real work. work. It just cracks me up. So, yeah, worship of the written word. It's the Book of Mormon that they really worship. Because the Bible, the average Mormon doesn't even know. And, sorry. No. How is it white supremacist? Well, I mean, it does say white and delightsome. Like the yep. book of the Book of Mormon is pretty explicitly a white supremacist text. 
playbook. And it talks about how, how the dark skinned people were loathsome. loathsome. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> Somebody told me once. Uh, they they said, oh no no! In the scriptures, the reason they say like their uh, their skins were darkened, it's actually a Hebrew expression meaning they were depressed. And I'm like, okay, okay. First of all, um, I don't think so. Uh, I looked I looked it up. All I could find were Mormon sources. Um, second of all. God was just like, oh, you disobeyed me. Um, you're depressed now. Like, it's like, wait, what? And then that was like loathsome. Like in the white and delightsome community, they look over at their, you know, the Lamanites and they're like, oh, yeah, you don't want to marry them. They're so depressed. It's like, <laughs> what? What? Wait, no, no. It's pretty obvious that it's literal. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's racist. It's racist. It cracks me up because those same people, and I, I experienced this on my tail end of leaving the church, and the whole time actually, but it really upped the ante when I was leaving. Is I would tell people like, yeah, like I have a problem. I think it's racist, and they would be so adamant that like, no, it doesn't mean dark skin. It means the clothes that they wore, or their hearts, or whatever excuse, even though it explicitly says it the way that it does. Um, I would also add on this list of 15 characteristics, 16 is obsession with semantics, but that's another topic for another time because I think white supremacy thrives off of that. Mm -hmm. um, but they would be so adamant, like, no, it's not racist, but these same exact people, if you drop the bomb that Jesus wasn't white, hell no. You drop the bomb that the Nephites have nothing to do with them and they're just native people, mm -hmm. no. Because they, yeah. they, they identify with the Nephites, even though if you really look at it, like, no, your your ancestors, if we look at the Book of Mormon as a real source, which it isn't, their ancestors were um, non-believers, whatever that word is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, Gentiles. Gentiles, yeah, they were Gentiles in Europe, like, doing their thing. I don't know, man. Like, well, we're, 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 we're worshiping pagan gods as as they were having a great time. They had nothing to do with the Book of Mormon, but they hyper-identify with the Nephites. And it's so funny. It's like, no, it's not racist. But then if you were to say, well, what if Jesus, the Middle Eastern man 2,000 years ago. Looked not gonna Middle right. Eastern. Well, looked and, Middle Eastern. And it's also the... Um, what you were talking about earlier in the episode about the idea of uh, whiteness, that it is that it is a construct, right? Um, that the idea of if somebody is white or not uh, changes over time. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, in some in some time periods, it was no, no, you had to be like, anglo-saxon like that was white you're italian no you're not white like that's not white um you're russian no you're you don't count you're not white uh you're spanish no that's that's not white and then now it's like oh you're of european descent right it's like and then sometimes people are like except for like the you know the balkan states and you know, like Turkey and stuff. It's like, that's not white, right? Like there's always this shifting goalpost of who's in the in group 
and and who is on the out um and yeah and it's just these arbitrary lines that that we draw to divide people when in reality everybody's a complex um and interesting human being right exactly oh it's it's true so that's why yeah race is a social construct prejudice always existed because you could hate people because of their language or their religion or where they're from but when it came to like you look this way so you're in this separate category 1600s look it up 1619 to 1692 things got real crazy real fast well i think especially like as the world opened up in those ways, you start encountering people who look so much different. So maybe in some ways, like your in-group starts widening, right? Like in um, in in the Americas or in the United States specifically, you know, Irish people were not seen as white and they weren't in the in-group, right? But then, oh, wait, now we have other races moving here who are more different than us. So actually, no, no, Irish people are cool. Yeah, they're like, they're fine. They're fine. It's these other people. They're the bad ones, right? And so there's constantly this this shifting goalpost of who's in, who's out, and 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 it changes as we as we discover more people, right? Like there might be a town-to-town rivalry, but then when, you know, but then when there's like, a rivalry from across the world you're like oh we're in this together right town that i hated just five years ago right um it's interesting it's interesting we always we always got to have somebody to hate i need a boogeyman yeah i talked about that when i did the panel with laban and sugarcane is because the church is like so obsessed with lgbtq plus people mm-hmm. and i'm like because they, they need some sort of made up they need some sort of made up villain for sure. And yeah. they'll they'll make one and it's not kosher anymore to say out loud kosher probably is not the right word. It's not acceptable anymore to say out loud how racist the church is. Like the church isn't so blatant anymore. Yeah. But they're gonna find ways. And so even by it's just the such a gaslight. They worship the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. which is racist, say that it's not racist. But if you actually challenge the racism, they get very defensive. Mm-hmm. And they do all the other things that we listed. They do the things. They do the quantitative quality. They do the perfectionism. Yeah. Um, um, may so. I uh, make a suggestion? That, yes. That we do a part two and potentially part three of this there's so conversation. Many. <laughs> there's a lot. And, and I, I think we're to. having a really interesting conversation about it. That's fair. Yeah. And there's 15, so we can break it up. Food be five episode that works that works yeah we can do that works for me Mm -hmm. we can stretch it out we can milk those downloads god yeah keep them coming back Jeez, sounds very churchy yeah Yeah. (laughs) leave them wanting more for the less leave them wanting more yeah quantity over quality that's what i always say that's my motto (laughs) (laughs) oh god no yeah it is it is super valid Definitely. And worship of the worship of the written word. As we know, the Bible was definitely used to justify everything from slavery to genocide to oppressing women. You can use it to justify anything you want. That's why there are so many Christians who are very, very, very progressive and so many who are completely insular, just like awful people. 
Um, cause you, you'll find, you'll find what you want, um, in pretty That's much, great. in pretty much everything. So yeah, any, I guess you're, you're in charge, heavenly mother. <laughs> Fair. Do you have any final thoughts, brother Jared? I think we got all, we got those pretty five solidified. Yeah. I like it. Thank you. He's a chill vibe. Did you just <laughs> say, brother Jared, did you just say you like white supremacy? Is that what I heard <laughs> oh you say? <laughs> Soundbite taken yeah, out yeah. of context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good list. I like it. I, I, I love those white supremacist tools. <laughs> Notes for later. Do you, do, you oh have, do, you have, do you have a favorite uh, tool there? <laughs> Brother of I mean, I guess we could say which one out of the first five we think is the most harmful. We can end on that note. Ooh, most harmful. Hmm. Wait, what was the last one we did? The book? Worship, yeah, Worship of the Written Word. I think that's probably... I feel from like that one's pretty expensive. Stance. Yeah, from a historical stance, because it's used just by everything. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, what do you think, Brother Jordan? For me, I really more to the sense of urgency because it's what caused mm. me to have like the most like mental distress like after I left, and it's kind of still what I'm still kind of like learning to cope and unravel. So as I, I do believe the other ones are like equally and or more awful, mm -hmm. but I think I would have to like on a more personal level. I think this one hits me a little more, um, just because I'm still unraveling that even like after I've left the church. Right. And I feel like what hits a lot of people, you know, even after, but definitely like they're all <laughs> equally and more awful than each other. They only get worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. As the list goes down, brothers and sisters. Yeah. It uh, gets worse. <laughs> and I, I, I will add too, like this list, this isn't exclusive to white supremacy. If you want to start your own cult or oh um, supremacist organization, you know, whatever, uh, might I recommend these 15 characteristics to, to get you started? I think it's a really great framework for uh, racism and prejudices of all kinds. Um, and so I think you should take it and run with it. That's just my recommendation. <laughs> Poor Tamun Okun is like, <laughs> this, is what I, this isn't what I intended. Um, but yeah, if in case people wanted to learn more, there is a website about it. But those are my, those are our final thoughts. I think the worst one, if I had to pick from these five, would probably be the defensiveness mm -hmm. because it eliminates the conversation. You can't even improve because you're busy being defensive. Yeah. I think um, I think that one's like because um, we talked about the personalization that people do when they get defensive, and so I I think that one is also something that really harms the person being defensive, not just like the person who is being afflicted by white supremacy, but it also afflicts the the perpetrator um, because you don't get to learn or grow. And I, I think it kind of messes with you as well um, because you hear something, there's that little bit of cognitive dissonance uh, when, it, when you get defensive as well. Word, emotionally stunted, I would say, definitely for sure. And I, I view the church as an emotionally stunted thing. It, it just is. I, I agree. So we're going to close in the name of the person who made this list in the in the holy name of Tamu Okun, I'm saying their name right. We close in your name. Amen. Say the, amen. <laughs> <laughs>